Hello, and welcome to Joy Christian Community Church. Each week we strive to bring you Bible-based, Christ-centered teaching so that you will grow alive, deep, and bold in the love and knowledge of Jesus. And now, here's Pastor Clayton with this week's message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, through your word, draw us ever closer to you. Strengthen us when we are weak in our faith. Make us strong in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith lies at the very heart of Christianity. It's true. Without faith, you can't be a Christian. But for all of our talk about faith, for many people, it's just this word. This kind of little word that people say in church or religious people will say, faith. And sometimes it's almost like a cheer in high school. It's kind of like this. We have faith. Yes, we do. We have faith. What about you? You know, I mean, it's, sometimes it's like that. Or, or people will say, well, you know, I know ty- times are tough for you right now, but you just got to hang on. You just got to have faith. Be strong in your faith. And while that can be nice, both of these examples I've given leave one a little bit wanting. So therefore, today, we are going to finish our series, Stepping Out in Faith. And we are going to explore what it means to have faith that moves mountains. But when we explore this, I want to make sure it's not just another cheer. I don't want it to be a platitude. I want us to actually be strengthened, truly strengthened in our faith so that mountains do move. So as always, let's set the context. So right before our reading from today, Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he's there with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And Peter, James, and John are there, and they see this brilliant white light of Christ, so much so that they tremble in fear. And then the voice of God the Father comes and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This account is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very important part. So they have this mountaintop experience, and now they have to come down from the mountain. And here begins our reading. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For for often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now, interestingly enough, Mark, which is normally the most succinct of the Gospels, gives more detail about this particular account. This is from Mark, and it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately after the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? So now, imagine you're Peter, James, or John. You've been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You have seen the glory of God. 
You have truly had a mountaintop experience. And now you come down the mountain and see people and hear people arguing. It's kind of like a cold cup of water in the face, isn't it? A little bit of slap of humanity, as you might say. Now, some people say that mountaintop experiences only work because other people aren't around. That when you come down the mountaintop, you lose that mountaintop experience greatly. You go back to the muck and mire of humanity. Have you ever had that experience before? You're there, you've had this wonderful weekend or conference, or maybe you even have a, had a wonderful, truly inspired time of worship at church. And then Monday comes, and Tuesday, and the rest of the week. Life would be wonderful if it weren't for other people, right? The muck and mire of humanity. But the thing is, Jesus didn't remain on the mountaintop, did he? In fact, he didn't even remain in heaven. He came down to the muck and mire of humanity for that purpose. And thus he took the disciples into humanity as well. And I think the lesson we can draw from this is love, grace, and mercy, and faith don't keep you from the world. Rather, they propel you into it. And for those who are following along, by the way, we do have sermon notes if you'd like to use those. Love, grace, and mercy, and faith don't keep you from the world. Rather, they propel you into it. Thus, Jesus and the disciples came down from the mountaintop. And there they came upon a man, a father, who's full of heartache. His son had been having seizures for a long time. He's often thrown into the fire, into water. Mark's gospel also says the demon makes him mute. It throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now the people were not ignorant. They knew the difference between a physical ailment, epilepsy, and a demonic spirit. So there are both there. There's not only physical, there's a demonic ailment as well. And it's important to note that Jesus actually had sent the disciples out for the physical well-being and the spiritual well-being of the world. It's not one or the other, it is both. It is both. I mean, that's part of the reason I talked about manna desert. Like, let's go help out people in need. They might not even be our brothers and sisters in Christ, but they are people in need, so we help them with the physical aspect of food. But there is more to it than that. So this is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of Samaria, but rather go to those lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. This is the mission that Jesus sent the disciples on. He said, I command you to go out and do this. Thus, do it, because I have commanded it. But the disciples had a problem, didn't they? They couldn't cast out this particular demon. So now we go down from the mountaintop into a twisted and faithless and twisted generation. 
And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was instantly healed. So here we get a glimpse of the pain, the annoyance, the indignation of Jesus with those around him. When he says, oh, faithless generation, that's, that's like that exclamation part. We don't do that in our culture much. How many, how many of your friends say, oh, woe is me? None? No, we don't. But there's that, oh, it's the exclamation of that. It is a rebuke. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. See, what were they focusing on? They were just focusing on the here and now, the stuff going around. They just wanted the boy to be healed. They didn't care about anything else, that. So where were their hearts turned towards? They weren't toward, turned towards Jesus. They were turned inward, a faithless and twisted generation. See, all of the people's minds were not set on the kingdom of God, nor were they putting their full trust in Jesus divine providence. They weren't focused on Jesus. That's why he calls them faithless and twisted. And then to top that off with the rebuke, he says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? This was near actually the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. For three years, he had been doing miracles. He had been teaching. He had been preaching. And still, he had to deal with this. He says something that a lot of people overlook. He says one little phrase, doesn't he? He says, bring him here to me. Bring him here to me. You should have brought him here to me in the first place. You should have looked to me in the first place. You see, for many people, Jesus is a last resort, not the first resort. How many of you, and they call it the Hail Mary prayer, right? The whole football thing. You know, looks really grim. Let's say a prayer. Because we want to do it ourselves, don't we? God helps those who help themselves. Do your best and... Oh, you don't know that one? Okay. God will do the rest. Do your best and God will do the rest. These are very unbiblical sayings, by the way, but they are part of our culture and they have been imbued in us so that we look to ourselves first and our ability first rather than Jesus. So Jesus gives the command. He says, bring him here to me. Jesus is the one who walked on water. Jesus is the one who by a word calmed the storm. Jesus by the word raised the dead, brought them back to life. The word of Christ, Jesus. You know, here it is. I wish, I wish that we would bring all of our cares, all of our worries to Jesus in the first place, not the last place. Why wait till it's not working out? Why not start with Christ in the beginning? But the disciples couldn't comprehend all of this. So now let's talk about a faith that moves mountains. 
Verse 19, then the disciples came to him, Jesus, privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus answers very succinctly why they couldn't cast out the demon, something that he had commanded, something that he had given them the power to do. Because of your little faith. So here's the question for you. Was he talking about the size or quantity of their faith? Was he talking about the size or quantity of your faith? What are we supposed to mean by because of your little faith? Well, the answer is no, because Jesus used the example of a mustard seed, right? A mustard seed is very, very small. In other scriptures, it says it's one of the smallest seeds there. So it really can't be about the size of the faith. There's a commentator, S.K. Weber wrote this, attempting to quantify faith can be misleading. There's a common misperception today that faith itself is the source of power. But here, this is the quote part I really like. But true faith is actually an admission of powerlessness and a dependence on God's power. True faith admits that we are indeed powerless. Now, this is something we want to reject, by the way. And it's ingrained in us that we have to be strong, that we have to do it on our own because God helps those who help themselves and do your best and God will do the rest. But true faith says, I can't. I can't do anything by myself. I can't even breathe without the power of God. Truth faith says, oh man, no, I'm dead in my sin. And it's only Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection who has brought me back to life. Without Christ, I'm nothing. This is something we don't want to grapple with. We want to be strong, but truth faith says, I have no strength apart from Christ. This is what Paul said. He knew this. In Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's from Galatians 2.20. If you want a verse in your Bible to highlight, man, that's a verse to highlight. It's no longer I who live, Christ who lives in me. So thus, when Jesus was talking about faith as small as the mustard seed, he was encouraging us to let go of our own efforts and instead trust in him. Trust in his power, his strength, his ability to let us be his instruments here on earth. Not to have God be our instrument, but to let us be his instrument. You've heard that saying, right? Something like this, if God is your co-pilot, or God's your co-pilot, well, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. You, you just can't live that way. I mean, you can, 
But then you're saying it's my faith that flies the plane. And no, no, it's God and God alone. And without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. So what is faith here? Faith is confidence in God and taking God at his word. Do you take God at his word? So this is a little challenge. Do you take God at his word? I've got a video here. When you pray, this is just kind of like a wishful thought. Well, Lord, I don't think you're really going to answer the prayer, but I'm supposed to pray anyway, so why not? Or do you actually, when you pray for rain, do you get out your umbrella? Are you ready for it? See, there's a whole difference here in what faith is, isn't it? Faith is in not in the strength of your prayer, but in him who can make it rain, in him who can move mountains. Jesus said that we, that we would be able to move mountains. He wasn't saying that literally. As a matter of fact, we never see Jesus moving a mountain. But it means that something so large that seems impossible for you, that could never happen, happens. Not because of your strength, but because of him who can do it. He says, nothing will be impossible for you. Now, by the way, I want to put a word of caution here on this particular verse. Nothing will be impossible for you. And you also have another verse in John chapter 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it for you. Look, you've got to be able to pray that prayer according to God's will, not your own. If you're praying to, uh, for gambling, for drunkenness, for uh, stealing, for gossip, for anything else that is against the nature of Christ Jesus, why would you think God would ever answer a prayer like that? See, when you pray in his name, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It means to pray about his holiness, his full righteousness, his sovereignty, his mercy, his grace, his wrath, his judgment. Praying in the name of Jesus, you need to come before the throne and cast down any pride that you have. Cast down that crown because that's your king you're praying to in his name. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we are to pray in his will. And it is this, Biblical faith assumes not only a belief in God's power, but also a heart after God's own heart, a heart which desires and asks for, for the things of God. So is your heart after God's heart here? Biblical faith submits your will to God's will. And interestingly enough, we were just having this conversation in the adult education hour this morning the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. Pray that one. And how many of you, by the way, have ever prayed to be disciplined by God? Now, you might have prayed for other people to be disciplined by God, right? Oh, God, show them their error. Do you ever pray that for yourself? For his will to be done means that you got to be able to come and have a heart after God's heart. Even if it seems 
against the world, even if it seems audacious to have faith in God and his word. So let me give you uh, an example. There's a pastor and commentator, Michael Wilkins. So he's got a story here. He says, I saw this about faith up close in my first pastorate that my wife and I served. The wife was one of our elders and was gravely ill and hospitalized. The doctors only gave her days to live. Her husband called me one evening and asked if I would gather the elders and come and pray for her. I was young and completely inexperienced pastor at the time, but they looked to me to offer some hope. As we gathered in her hospital room and we prayed and anointed her, I went home that night exhausted with the ordeal of her condition, but peaceful in a way that we had placed her in God's hands. The next day, her husband called early in the morning with intense excitement in his voice. His wife was showing improvement. The doctors were amazed at her recovery, and within two weeks, she was released from the hospital. Although she was in her 70s and suffered repercussions from her illness, she went on to live four more years. It was a miraculous healing that profoundly affected the entire church. Now, also, one of our other elders in the church had a bedridden wife. She was suffering from a severe spinal injury. She likewise asked us to come and pray for her. I was feeling as if a whole new ministry was opening up. As we gathered around her bed, we prayed the same prayers, used the same anointing, and had the same hope. But this woman was not healed. In fact, she got worse. Did we have more faith when we prayed in the first incident than the second? No. I don't believe so. I believe that we acted out of the same primary motivation. We were seeking God's will for each woman. In the first case, it was God's will that she be healed. It wasn't God's will in the second case. Then he goes on to say, we were God's instruments by which he demonstrated his will. The second woman later declared to us that not being healed was the best thing that ever happened to her because she learned to rely on God in the middle of her suffering. This eventually led her to developing a ministry to others in like circumstances. Then he goes on to say this, it is not the amount of our faith that works miracles. It is the focus of our faith on Jesus who will work miracles through us according to his will. So therefore, do we place the confidence, right? Do we place the confidence in God and his will that he will move a mountain? And that then we are instruments of his will. And by the way, if you pray for his will to be done, know that he will also equip you to be his instruments in the world. In a very simple manner here, this if you ask God to move a mountain, you better be ready to pick up the shovel he gives you. Right? See, we pray so passively sometimes. God, please move that mountain. Don't ask me to do anything. I'm too busy. But move that mountain, please. Now look, you pray to use, have a mountain moved. Be ready to be used by God as an instrument of his will. So here's a question for you. When you pray and ask in faith, is it more like a, a I wish, a kind of? 
Do you pray believing that God does not answer your prayers, that it's fruitless to pray? Are you praying for something that will go against his will? God will not answer that. Against his will, he will not answer that prayer. He might actually answer in discipline instead. Do you pray only after things aren't turning out? Is Jesus your last resort? Or do you pray like this? Do you first look to your heart, confessing any sins before him, knowing that it's only through him you even have life, and then boldly asking in faith for his divine providence? Something like this. Boldly coming before him saying, I'm a sinner through and through, and it's by your grace that I am saved. Because of my trust in you, Jesus, and knowing that you do hear our prayers, I've got a mountain that needs to be moved. I pray before you today, this very moment, to move the mountain. I don't know how it's going to be done. It looks impossible to me, but I know with you nothing is impossible. So I'm placing my full trust in you. All my doubt, all my fears, I turn them all over to you. Let me be an instrument of your will. Use me as you desire. And in all of this, Lord Jesus, let your glory be seen. Let your majesty be known. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing me. And in your holy and precious name, I pray. Amen. Pray to move mountains. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. God's peace and joy in Christ Jesus be with you.